Chapter Five, Part One of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Five, Results. Having now investigated somewhat in detail the conditions under which the English working class lives, it is time to draw some further inferences from the facts presented and then to compare our inferences with the actual state of things. Let us see what the workers themselves have become under the given circumstances, what sort of people they are, what their physical, mental, and moral status. When one individual inflicts bodily injury upon another, such injury that death results, we call the deed manslaughter. When the assailant knew in advance that the injury would be fatal, we call his deed murder. But when society places hundreds of proletarians in such a position that they inevitably meet a too early and an unnatural death, one which is quite as much a death by violence as that by the sword or bullet, when it deprives thousands of the necessaries of life, places them under conditions in which they cannot live, forces them through the strong arm of the law to remain in such conditions until that death ensues which is the inevitable consequence, knows that these thousands of victims must perish, and yet permits these conditions to remain, its deed is murder just as surely as the deed of the single individual. Disguised, malicious murder, murder against which none can defend himself, which does not seem what it is, because no man sees the murderer, because the death of the victim seems a natural one, since the offence is more one of omission than of commission. But murder it remains. I have now to prove that society in England daily and hourly commits what the working men's organs, with perfect correctness, characterize as social murder, that it has placed the workers under conditions in which they can neither retain health nor live long, that it undermines the vital force of these workers gradually, little by little, and so hurries them to the grave before their time. I have further to prove that society knows how injurious such conditions are to the health and the life of the workers and yet does nothing to improve these conditions. That it knows the consequences of its deeds, that its act is, therefore, not mere manslaughter but murder, I shall have proved, when I cite official documents, reports of Parliament and of the Government in substantiation of my charge. That a class which lives under the conditions already sketched, and is so ill provided with the most necessary means of subsistence, cannot be healthy and can reach no advanced age, is self-evident. Let us review the circumstances once more with a special reference to the health of the workers. The centralization of population in great cities exercises of itself an unfavorable influence. The atmosphere of London can never be so pure, so rich in oxygen, as the air of the country. Two and a half million pairs of lungs, two hundred and fifty thousand fires, crowded upon an area three to four miles square, consume an enormous amount of oxygen which is replaced with difficulty because the method of building cities in itself impedes ventilation. The carbonic acid gas, engendered by respiration and fire, remains in the streets by reason of its specific gravity, and the chief air current passes over the roofs of the city. The lungs of the inhabitants fail to receive the due supply of oxygen, and the consequence is mental and physical lassitude and low vitality. For this reason, the dwellers in cities are far less exposed to acute and especially to inflammatory affections than rural populations, who live in a free, normal atmosphere, 
but they suffer the more from chronic affections. And if life in large cities is, in itself, injurious to health, how great must be the harmful influence of an abnormal atmosphere in the working people's quarters, where, as we have seen, everything combines to poison the air. In the country it may, perhaps, be comparatively innoxious to keep a dung-heap adjoining one's dwelling, because the air has free ingress from all sides. But in the midst of a large town, among closely built lanes and courts that shut out all movement of the atmosphere, the case is different. All putrefying vegetable and animal substances give off gases decidedly injurious to health, and if these gases have no free way of escape, they inevitably poison the atmosphere. The filth and stagnant pools of the working people's quarters in the great cities have, therefore, the worst effect upon the public health, because they produce precisely those gases which engender disease. So, too, the exhalations from contaminated streams. But this is by no means all. The manner in which the great multitude of the poor is treated by society to-day is revolting. They are drawn into the large cities where they breathe a poorer atmosphere than in the country. They are relegated to districts which, by reason of the method of construction, are worse ventilated than any others. They are deprived of all means of cleanliness, of water itself, since pipes are laid only when paid for, and the rivers so polluted that they are useless for such purposes. They are obliged to throw all offal and garbage, all dirty water, often all disgusting drainage and excrement into the streets, being without other means of disposing of them. They are thus compelled to infect the region of their own dwellings. Nor is this enough. All conceivable evils are heaped upon the heads of the poor. If the population of great cities is too dense in general, it is they, in particular, who are packed into the least space. As though the vitiated atmosphere of the streets were not enough, they are penned in dozens into single rooms, so that the air which they breathe at night is enough in itself to stifle them. They are given damp dwellings, cellar-dens that are not waterproof from below, or garrets that leak from above. Their houses are so built that the clammy air cannot escape. They are supplied bad, tattered, or rotten clothing, adulterated and indigestible food. They are exposed to the most exciting changes of mental condition, the most violent vibrations between hope and fear. They are hunted like game, and not permitted to attain peace of mind and quiet enjoyment of life. They are deprived of all enjoyments, except that of sexual indulgence and drunkenness, are worked every day to the point of complete exhaustion of their mental and physical energies, and are thus constantly spurred on to the maddest excess in the only two enjoyments at their command and if they surmount all this, they fall victims to want of work in a crisis when all the little is taken from them that had hitherto been vouchsafed them. How is it possible, under such conditions, for the lower class to be healthy and long-lived? What else can be expected than an excessive mortality, an unbroken series of epidemics, a progressive deterioration in the physique of the working population? Let us see how the facts stand that the dwellings of the workers in the worst portions of the cities together with the other conditions of life of this class engender numerous diseases is attested on all sides the article already quoted from the artisan asserts with perfect truth that lung diseases must be the inevitable consequence of such conditions and that indeed cases of this kind are disproportionately frequent in this class that the bad air of london and especially of the working people's districts is in the highest degree favourable to the development of consumption, 
the hectic appearance of great numbers of persons sufficiently indicates if one roams the streets a little in the early morning when the multitudes are on their way to their work one is amazed at the number of persons who look wholly or half consumptive even in manchester the people have not the same appearance these pale lank narrow-chested hollow-eyed ghosts whom one passes at every step these languid flabby faces incapable of the slightest energetic expression i have seen in such startling numbers only in london though consumption carries off a horde of victims annually in the factory towns of the north in competition with consumption stands typhus to say nothing of scarlet fever a disease which brings most frightful devastation into the ranks of the working class typhus that universally diffused affliction is attributed by the official report on the sanitary condition of the working class directly to the bad state of the dwellings in the matters of ventilation drainage and cleanliness this report compiled it must not be forgotten by the leading physicians of england from the testimony of other physicians asserts that a single ill-ventilated court a single blind alley without drainage is enough to engender fever and usually does engender it especially if the inhabitants are greatly crowded this fever has the same character almost everywhere and develops in nearly every case into specific typhus it is to be found in the working people's quarters of all great towns and cities and in single ill-built ill-kept streets of smaller places though it naturally seeks out single victims in better districts also in london it has now prevailed for a considerable time its extraordinary violence in the year eighteen thirty seven gave rise to the report already referred to according to the annual report of dr southwood smith on the london fever hospital the number of patients in eighteen forty three was one thousand four hundred and sixty two or four hundred and eighteen more than in any previous year in the damp dirty regions of the north south and east districts of london this disease raged with extraordinary violence many of the patients were working people from the country who had endured the severest privation while migrating and after their arrival had slept hungry and half naked in the streets and so fallen victims to the fever these people were brought into the hospital in such a state of weakness that unusual quantities of wine cognac and preparations of ammonia and other stimulants were required for their treatment sixteen and a half per cent of all patients died this malignant fever is to be found in manchester in the worst quarters of the old town ancoats little ireland etc it is rarely extinct though here as in the english towns generally it prevails to a less extent than might be expected in scotland and ireland on the other hand it rages with a violence that surpasses all conception in edinburgh and glasgow it broke out in eighteen seventeen after the famine and in eighteen twenty six and eighteen thirty seven with especial violence after the commercial crisis subsiding somewhat each time after having raged about three years in edinburgh about six thousand persons were attacked by the fever during the epidemic of eighteen seventeen and about ten thousand in that of eighteen thirty seven and not only the number of persons attacked but the violence of the disease increased with each repetition but the fury of the epidemic in all former periods seems to have been child's play in comparison with its ravages after the crisis of eighteen forty two one-sixth of the whole indigent population of scotland was seized by the fever and the infection was carried by wandering beggars with fearful rapidity from one locality to another it did not reach the middle and upper classes of the population 
yet in two months there were more fever cases than in twelve years before in glasgow twelve per cent of the population were seized in the year eighteen forty three thirty two thousand persons of whom thirty two per cent perished while this mortality in manchester and liverpool does not ordinarily exceed eight per cent the illness reached a crisis on the seventh and fifteenth days on the latter the patient usually became yellow which our authority regards as an indication that the cause of the malady was to be sought in mental excitement and anxiety in ireland too these fever epidemics have become domesticated during twenty-one months of the years eighteen seventeen to eighteen eighteen thirty-nine thousand fever patients passed through the dublin hospital and in a more recent year according to sheriff allison sixty thousand in cork the fever hospital received one-seventh of the population in eighteen seventeen eighteen eighteen in limerick in the same time one-fourth and in the bad quarter of waterford nineteen-twentieths of the whole population were ill of the fever at one time when one remembers under what conditions the working people live when one thinks how crowded their dwellings are how every nook and corner swarms with human beings how sick and well sleep in the same room in the same bed the only wonder is that a contagious disease like this fever does not spread yet farther and when one reflects how little medical assistance the sick have at command how many are without any medical advice whatsoever and ignorant of the most ordinary precautionary measures the mortality seems actually small dr allison who has made a careful study of this disease attributes it directly to the want and the wretched condition of the poor as in the report already quoted he asserts that privations and the insufficient satisfaction of vital needs are what prepare the frame for contagion and make the epidemic widespread and terrible he proves that a period of privation a commercial crisis or a bad harvest has each time produced the typhus epidemic in ireland as in scotland and that the fury of the plague has fallen almost exclusively on the working class it is a noteworthy fact that according to his testimony the majority of persons who perish by typhus are fathers of families precisely the persons who can least be spared by those dependent upon them and several irish physicians whom he quotes bear the same testimony another category of disease arises directly from the food rather than the dwellings of the workers the food of the labourer indigestible enough in itself is utterly unfit for young children and he has neither means nor time to get his children more suitable food moreover the custom of giving children spirits and even opium is very general and these two influences with the rest of the conditions of life prejudicial to bodily development give rise to the most diverse affections of the digestive organs leaving lifelong traces behind them nearly all workers have stomachs more or less weak and are yet forced to adhere to the diet which is the root of the evil how should they know what is to blame for it and if they knew how could they obtain a more suitable regimen so long as they cannot adopt a different way of living and are not better educated but new disease arises during childhood from impaired digestion scrofula is almost universal among the working class and scrofulous parents have scrofulous children especially when the original influences continue in full force to operate upon the inherited tendency of the children a second consequence of this insufficient bodily nourishment during the years of growth and development is rachitis which is extremely common among the children of the working class 
the hardening of the bones is delayed the development of the skeleton in general is restricted and deformities of the legs and spinal column are frequent in addition to the usual rachitic affections how greatly all these evils are increased by the changes to which the workers are subject in consequence of fluctuations in trade want of work and the scanty wages in time of crisis it is not necessary to dwell upon temporary want of sufficient food to which almost every working-man is exposed at least once in the course of his life only contributes to intensify the effects of his usual sufficient but bad diet children who are half starved just when they most need ample and nutritious food and how many such there are during every crisis and even when trade is at its best must inevitably become weak scrofulous and rachitic in a high degree and that they do become so their appearance amply shows the neglect to which the great mass of working-men's children are condemned leaves ineradicable traces and brings the enfeeblement of the whole race of workers with it add to this the unsuitable clothing of this class the impossibility of precautions against colds the necessity of toiling so long as health permits want made more dire when sickness appears and the only too common lack of all medical assistance and we have a rough idea of the sanitary condition of the english working-class the injurious effects peculiar to single employments as now conducted i shall not deal with here besides these there are other influences which enfeeble the health of a great number of workers intemperance most of all all possible temptations all allurements combine to bring the workers to drunkenness liquor is almost their only source of pleasure and all things conspire to make it accessible to them the working-man comes from his work tired exhausted finds his home comfortless damp dirty repulsive he has urgent need of recreation he must have something to make work worth his trouble to make the prospect of the next day endurable his unnerved uncomfortable hypochondriac state of mind and body arising from his unhealthy condition and especially from indigestion is aggravated beyond endurance by the general conditions of his life the uncertainty of his existence his dependence upon all possible accidents and chances and his inability to do anything towards gaining an assured position his enfeebled frame weakened by bad air and bad food violently demands some external stimulus his social need can be gratified only in the public-house he has absolutely no other place where he can meet his friends how can he be expected to resist the temptation it is morally and physically inevitable that under such circumstances a very large number of working-men should fall into intemperance and apart from the chiefly physical influences which drive the working-man into drunkenness there is the example of the great mass the neglected education the impossibility of protecting the young from temptation in many cases the direct influence of intemperate parents who give their own children liquor the certainty of forgetting for an hour or two the wretchedness and burden of life and a hundred other circumstances so mighty that the workers can in truth hardly be blamed for yielding to such overwhelming pressure drunkenness has here ceased to be a vice for which the vicious can be held responsible it becomes a phenomenon the necessary inevitable effect of certain conditions upon an object possessed of no volition in relation to those conditions they who have degraded the working-man to a mere object have the responsibility to bear but as inevitably as a great number of working-men fall a prey to drink just so inevitably does it manifest its ruinous influence upon the body and mind of its victims 
all the tendencies to disease arising from the conditions of life of the workers are promoted by it it stimulates in the highest degree the development of lung and digestive troubles the rise and spread of typhus epidemics another source of physical mischief to the working class lies in the impossibility of employing skilled physicians in cases of illness it is true that a number of charitable institutions strive to supply this want that the infirmary in manchester for instance receives or gives advice in medicine to two thousand two hundred patients annually but what is that in a city in which according to gaskell's calculation three-fourths of the population need medical aid every year english doctors charge high fees and workingmen are not in a position to pay them they can therefore do nothing or are compelled to call in cheap charlatans and use quack remedies which do more harm than good an immense number of such quacks thrive in every english town securing their clientele among the poor by means of advertisements posters and other such devices besides these vast quantities of patent medicines are sold for all conceivable ailments morrison's pills parr's life pills dr mainwaring's pills and a thousand other pills essences and balsams all of which have the property of curing all the ills that flesh is heir to these medicines rarely contain actually injurious substances but when taken freely and often they affect the system prejudicially and as the unwary purchasers are always recommended to take as much as possible it is not to be wondered at that they swallow them wholesale whether wanted or not it is by no means unusual for the manufacturer of parr's life pills to sell twenty to twenty five thousand boxes of these salutary pills in a week and they are taken for constipation by this one for diarrhoea by that one for fever weakness and all possible ailments as our german peasants are cupped or bled at certain seasons so do the english working people now consume patent medicines to their own injury and the great profit of the manufacturer one of the most injurious of these patent medicines is a drink prepared with opiates chiefly laudanum under the name godfrey's cordial women who work at home and have their own and other people's children to take care of give them this drink to keep them quiet and as many believe to strengthen them they often begin to give this medicine to newly-born children and continue without knowing the effects of this heart's ease until the children die the less susceptible the child's system to the action of the opium the greater the quantities administered when the cordial ceases to act laudanum alone is given often to the extent of fifteen to twenty drops at a dose the coroner of nottingham testified before a parliamentary commission that one apothecary had according to his own statement used thirteen hundred weight of laudanum in one year in the preparation of godfrey's cordial the effects upon the children so treated may be readily imagined they are pale feeble wilted and usually die before completing the second year the use of this cordial is very extensive in all great towns and industrial districts in the kingdom the result of all these influences is a general enfeeblement of the frame in the working class there are few vigorous well-built healthy persons among the workers that is among the factory operatives who are employed in confined rooms and we are here discussing these only they are almost all weakly of angular but not powerful build lean pale and of relaxed fibre with the exception of the muscles especially exercised in their work nearly all suffer from indigestion and consequently from a more or less hypochondriac melancholy irritable nervous condition their enfeebled constitutions are unable to resist disease 
and are therefore seized by it on every occasion. Hence they age prematurely, and die early. On this point the mortality statistics supply unquestionable testimony. According to the report of Registrar-General Graham, the annual death rate of all England and Wales is something less than two and a quarter percent. That is to say, out of forty-five persons, one dies every year. This was the average for the year 1839-1840. In 1840-1841, the mortality diminished somewhat, and the death rate was but one in forty-six. But in the great cities the proportion is wholly different. I have before me official tables of mortality, Manchester Guardian, July 31, 1844, according to which the death rate of several large towns is as follows. In Manchester, including Charlton and Salford, one in thirty-two point seven two, and excluding Charlton and Salford, one in thirty point seven five. In Liverpool, including West Derby, which is a suburb, thirty-one point nine, and excluding West Derby, twenty-nine point nine while the average of all the districts of Cheshire, Lancashire, and Yorkshire cited, including a number of wholly or partially rural districts and many small towns, with a total population of 2,172,506 for the whole, is one death in 39.8 persons. How unfavorably the workers are placed in the great cities, the mortality for Prescott in Lancashire shows. A district inhabited by miners and showing a lower sanitary condition than that of the agricultural districts, mining being by no means a healthful occupation. But these miners live in the country, and the death rate among them is but one in forty-seven point five four, or nearly two and a half percent better than that for all England. All these statements are based upon the mortality tables for 1843. Still higher is the death rate in the Scotch cities, in Edinburgh, in 1838-1839, one in twenty-nine. In 1831, in the old town alone, one in twenty-two. In Glasgow, according to Dr. Cohen, the average has been, since 1830, one in thirty. And in single years, one in twenty-two to twenty-four. That this enormous shortening of life falls chiefly upon the working class, that the general average is improved by the smaller mortality of the upper and middle classes, is attested upon all sides. One of the most recent depositions is that of a physician, Dr. P. H. Holland, in Manchester, who investigated Charlton-on-Medlock, a suburb of Manchester, under official commission. He divided the houses and streets into three classes each, and ascertained the following variations in the death rate. In the first class of streets, houses first class, mortality one in fifty-one. First class of streets, houses second class, mortality one in forty-five. Houses third class, mortality one in thirty-six. In the second class of streets, houses of the first class, mortality one in fifty-five. Houses second class, mortality one in thirty-eight. Houses third class, mortality one in thirty-five. Third class of streets, houses first class, wanting. Houses second class, mortality one in thirty-five. Houses third class, mortality one in twenty-five. It is clear from other tables given by Holland that the mortality in the streets of the second class is eighteen percent greater, and in the streets of the third class sixty-eight percent greater than in those of the first class. That the mortality in the houses of the second class is thirty-one percent greater, and in the third class seventy-eight percent greater than in those of the first class, that the mortality in those bad streets which were improved, 
decreased twenty-five per cent. He closes with the remark, very frank for an English bourgeois, quote, when we find the rate of mortality four times as high in some streets as in others, and twice as high in whole classes of streets as in other classes, and further find that it is all but invariably high in those streets which are in bad condition, and almost invariably low in those whose condition is good, we cannot resist the conclusion that multitudes of our fellow-creatures, hundreds of our immediate neighbours, are annually destroyed for want of the most evident precautions." The report of the sanitary condition of the working class contains information which attests the same fact. In Liverpool, in 1840, the average longevity of the upper classes, gentry, professional men, etc., was thirty-five years, that of the businessmen and better-placed handicraftsmen, twenty-two years, and that of the operatives, day-laborers, and serviceable class in general, but fifteen years. The parliamentary reports contain a mass of similar facts. The death-rate is kept so high chiefly by the heavy mortality among young children in the working class. The tender frame of a child is least able to withstand the unfavorable influences of an inferior lot in life. The neglect to which they are often subjected, when both parents work or one is dead, avenges itself promptly, and no one need wonder that in Manchester, according to the report last quoted, more than fifty-seven per cent of the children of the working class perish before the fifth year while but twenty per cent of the children of the higher classes, and not quite thirty-two per cent of the children of all classes in the country, die under five years of age. The article of the artisan, already several times referred to, furnishes exacter information on this point, by comparing the city death-rate in single diseases of children with the country death-rate, thus demonstrating that, in general, epidemics in Manchester and Liverpool are three times more fatal than in country districts that affections of the nervous system are quintupled, and stomach troubles trebled, while deaths from affections of the lungs in cities are to those in the country as two and a half to one. Fatal cases of smallpox, measles, scarlet fever, and whooping cough among small children are four times more frequent. Those of water on the brain are trebled, and convulsions ten times more frequent. To quote another acknowledged authority, I append the following table. Out of ten thousand persons there die, in Rutlandshire, a healthy agricultural district, under five years, two thousand eight hundred and sixty-five, between five and nineteen years, eight hundred and ninety-one, between twenty and thirty-nine years, one thousand two hundred and seventy-five, between forty and fifty-nine, one thousand two hundred and ninety-nine, between sixty and sixty-nine, one thousand one hundred and eighty-nine between seventy and seventy-nine, one thousand four hundred and twenty-eight, between eighty and eighty-nine, nine hundred and thirty-eight, between ninety and ninety-nine, one hundred and twelve, one hundred years and over, three persons. Out of ten thousand persons there die in Essex, marshy agricultural district, under five years, three thousand one hundred and fifty-nine, between five and nineteen years, one thousand one hundred and ten, between twenty and thirty-nine, one thousand five hundred and twenty-six, between forty and fifty-nine, one thousand four hundred and thirteen, between sixty and sixty-nine, nine hundred sixty-three, between seventy and seventy-nine, one thousand nineteen, between eighty and eighty-nine, six hundred thirty, between ninety and ninety-nine, one hundred seventy-seven, one hundred years and older, three, 
out of ten thousand persons there die in the town of carlisle between seventeen seventy nine and seventeen eighty seven before the introduction of mills under five years four thousand four hundred and eight between five and nineteen nine hundred and twenty one between twenty and thirty nine one thousand six between forty and fifty nine one thousand two hundred and one between sixty and sixty nine nine hundred and forty between seventy and seventy nine eight hundred twenty six between eighty and eighty nine six hundred and thirty three between ninety and ninety nine one hundred and fifty three one hundred years and older twenty two out of ten thousand persons there die in the town of carlisle after the introduction of mills under five years of age four thousand seven hundred and thirty eight between five and nineteen nine hundred thirty between twenty and thirty-nine one thousand two hundred and one between forty and fifty-nine one thousand one hundred and thirty-four between sixty and sixty-nine six hundred seventy-seven between seventy and seventy-nine seven hundred twenty-seven between eighty and eighty-nine four hundred and fifty-two between ninety and ninety-nine eighty one hundred years and older one out of ten thousand persons there die in preston a factory town under five years four thousand nine hundred forty seven between five and nineteen years one thousand one hundred thirty six between twenty and thirty nine one thousand three hundred seventy nine between forty and fifty nine one thousand one hundred and fourteen between sixty and sixty nine five hundred fifty three between seventy and seventy nine five hundred thirty two between eighty and eighty-nine, two hundred ninety-eight, between ninety and ninety-nine, thirty-eight, one hundred years and older, three. And lastly, out of ten thousand persons there die in Leeds, a factory town, under five years, five thousand two hundred eighty-six, between five and nineteen, nine hundred twenty-seven, between twenty and thirty-nine, one thousand two hundred twenty-eight, between forty and fifty-nine, one thousand one hundred ninety-eight, between sixty and sixty-nine, five hundred ninety-three, between seventy and seventy-nine, five hundred twelve, between eighty and eighty-nine, two hundred and twenty-five, between ninety and ninety-nine, twenty-nine, one hundred years of age and older, two. Apart from the diverse diseases which are the necessary consequence of the present neglect and oppression of the poorer classes, there are other influences which contribute to increase the mortality among small children, in many families the wife like the husband has to work away from home and the consequence is the total neglect of the children who are either locked up or given out to be taken care of it is therefore not to be wondered at if hundreds of them perish through all manner of accidents nowhere are so many children run over nowhere are so many killed by falling drowning or burning as in the great cities and towns of england deaths from burns and scalds are especially frequent such a case occurring nearly every week during the winter months in manchester and very frequently in london though little mention is made of them in the papers i have at hand a copy of the weekly dispatch of december fifteenth eighteen forty four according to which in the week from december first to december seventh inclusive six such cases occurred these unhappy children perishing in this terrible way are victims of our social disorder and of the property-holding classes interested in maintaining and prolonging this disorder. Yet one is left in doubt whether even this terrible torturing death 
is not a blessing for the children in rescuing them from a long life of toil and wretchedness rich in suffering and poor in enjoyment so far has it gone in england and the bourgeoisie reads these things every day in the newspapers and takes no further trouble in the matter but it cannot complain if after the official and non-official testimony here cited which must be known to it i broadly accuse it of social murder let the ruling class see to it that these frightful conditions are ameliorated or let it surrender the administration of the common interests to the labouring class to the latter course it is by no means inclined for the former task so long as it remains the bourgeoisie crippled by bourgeois prejudice it has not the needed power for if at last after hundreds of thousands of victims have perished it manifests some little anxiety for the future passing a metropolitan buildings act under which the most unscrupulous overcrowding of dwellings is to be at least in some slight degree restricted if it points with pride to measures which far from attacking the root of the evil do not by any means meet the demands of the commonest sanitary policy it cannot thus vindicate itself from the accusation the english bourgeoisie has but one choice either to continue its rule under the unanswerable charge of murder and in spite of this charge or to abdicate in favour of the labouring class hitherto it has chosen the former course let us turn from the physical to the mental state of the workers since the bourgeoisie vouchsafes them only so much of life as is absolutely necessary we need not wonder that it bestows upon them only so much education as lies in the interest of the bourgeoisie and that in truth is not much the means of education in england are restricted out of all proportion to the population the few day schools at the command of the working class are available only for the smallest minority and are bad besides the teachers worn-out workers and other unsuitable persons who only turn to teaching in order to live are usually without the indispensable elementary knowledge without the moral discipline so needful for the teacher and relieved of all public supervision here too free competition rules and as usual the rich profit by it and the poor for whom competition is not free who have not the knowledge needed to enable them to form a correct judgment have the evil consequences to bear compulsory school attendance does not exist in the mills it is as we shall see purely nominal and when in the session of eighteen forty three the ministry was disposed to make this nominal compulsion effective the manufacturing bourgeoisie opposed the measure with all its might though the working class was outspokenly in favour of compulsory school attendance moreover a mass of children work the whole week through in the mills or at home and therefore cannot attend school the evening schools supposed to be attended by children who are employed during the day are almost abandoned or attended without benefit it is asking too much that young workers who have been using themselves up twelve hours in the day should go to school from eight to ten at night and those who try it usually fall asleep as is testified by hundreds of witnesses in the children's employment commission's report sunday schools have been founded it is true but they too are most scantily supplied with teachers and can be of use to those only who have already learnt something in the day schools the interval from one sunday to the next is too long for an ignorant child to remember in the second sitting what it learned in the first a week before the children's employment commission's report furnishes a hundred proofs and the commission itself most emphatically expresses the opinion that neither the week-day nor the sunday schools in the least degree meet the needs of the nation 
this report gives evidence of ignorance in the working-class of england such as could hardly be expected in spain or italy it cannot be otherwise the bourgeoisie has little to hope and much to fear from the education of the working class the ministry in its whole enormous budget of fifty-five million pounds has only the single trifling item of forty thousand pounds for public education and but for the fanaticism of the religious sects which does at least as much harm as good the means of education would be yet more scanty as it is the state church manages its national schools and the various sects their sectarian schools for the sole purpose of keeping the children of the brethren of the faith within the congregation and of winning away a poor childish soul here and there from some other sect the consequence is that religion and precisely the most unprofitable side of religion polemical discussion is made the principal subject of instruction and the memory of the children overburdened with incomprehensible dogmas and theological distinctions that sectarian hatred and bigotry are awakened as early as possible and all rational mental and moral training shamefully neglected the working-class has repeatedly demanded of parliament a system of strictly secular public education leaving religion to the ministers of the sects but thus far no ministry has been induced to grant it the minister is the obedient servant of the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie is divided into countless sects but each would gladly grant the workers the otherwise dangerous education on the sole condition of their accepting as an antidote the dogmas peculiar to the especial sect in question and as these sects are still quarrelling among themselves for supremacy the workers remain for the present without education it is true that the manufacturers boast of having enabled the majority to read but the quality of the reading is appropriate to the source of the instruction as the children's employment commission proves according to this report he who knows his letters can read enough to satisfy the conscience of the manufacturers and when one reflects upon the confused orthography of the english language which makes reading one of the arts learned only under long instruction this ignorance is readily understood very few working people write readily and writing orthographically is beyond the powers even of many educated persons the sunday schools of the state church of the quakers and i think of several other sects do not teach writing quote, because it is too worldly an employment for sunday the quality of the instruction offered the workers in other directions may be judged from a specimen or two taken from the children's employment commission's report which unfortunately does not embrace millwork proper quote, in birmingham says commissioner granger the children examined by me are as a whole utterly wanting in all that could be in the remotest degree called a useful education although in almost all the schools religious instruction alone is furnished the profoundest ignorance even upon that subject prevailed quote, in wolverhampton says commissioner horne i found among others the following example a girl of eleven years had attended both day and sunday school had never heard of another world of heaven or another life a boy seventeen years old did not know that twice two are four nor how many farthings in two pence even when the money was placed in his hand several boys had never heard of london nor of willenhall though the latter was but an hour's walk from their homes and in the closest relations with wolverhampton several had never heard the name of the queen nor other names such as nelson wellington bonaparte but it was noteworthy that those who had never heard even of st paul moses or solomon 
were very well instructed as to the life, deeds, and character of Dick Turpin, and especially of Jack Shepherd. A youth of sixteen did not know how many twice two are, nor how much four farthings make. A youth of seventeen asserted that four farthings are four halfpence. A third, seventeen years old, answered several very simple questions with the brief statement that he, quote, was nay a judge of nothing, end quote. These children, who are crammed with religious doctrines four or five years at a stretch, know as little at the end as at the beginning. One child, quote, went to Sunday school regularly for five years, does not know who Jesus Christ is, but had heard the name, had never heard of the twelve apostles, Samson, Moses, Aaron, etc. Another, quote, attended Sunday school regularly six years, knows who Jesus Christ was, he died on the cross to save our Saviour, had never heard of St. Peter or St. Paul. A third, quote, attended different Sunday schools seven years, can read only the thin, easy books with simple words of one syllable, has heard of the apostles, but does not know whether St. Peter was one or St. John. The latter must have been St. John Wesley. To the question who Christ was, Horn received the following answers among others quote, He was Adam, he was an apostle he was the Saviour's Lord's son, end quote. and from a youth of sixteen, quote, he was a king of London long ago, end quote. In Sheffield, Commissioner Simmons let the children from the Sunday school read aloud. They could not tell what they had read, nor what sort of people the apostles were, of whom they had just been reading. After he had asked them all one after the other about the apostles without securing a single correct answer, one sly-looking little fellow with great glee called out, quote, I know, mister, they were the lepers. End quote. From the pottery districts and from Lancashire, the reports are similar. This is what the bourgeoisie and the state are doing for the education and improvement of the working class. Fortunately, the conditions under which this class lives are such as give it a sort of practical training, which not only replaces school cramming, but renders harmless the confused religious notions connected with it and even places the workers in the vanguard of the national movement of England. Necessity is the mother of invention, and what is still more important, of thought and action. The English workingman who can scarcely read, and still less write, nevertheless knows very well where his own interest and that of the nation lies. He knows, too, what the especial interest of the bourgeoisie is, and what he has to expect of that bourgeoisie. If he cannot write, he can speak, and speak in public. If he has no arithmetic, he can, nevertheless, reckon with the political economists enough to see through a corn-law repealing bourgeois, and to get the better of him in argument. If celestial matters remain very mixed for him, in spite of all the effort of the preachers, he sees all the more clearly into terrestrial, political, and social questions. We shall have occasion to refer again to this point, and pass now to the moral characteristics of our workers. End of chapter 5, part 1